Okay, so we're following up on the last lecture on China, uh, picking up where we left off in 1927. So from 1927 to 1949, uh, China was ruled more or less uh, by the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, the KMT, and its head, Chiang Kai-shek. From a landlord merchant family near Ningbo, Chiang Kai-shek had aspired originally to take the civil service exams, but when they were abolished, he actually went to Japan to study military science. His nationalist government turned toward the West for help in modernizing the country and eventually ended up in a war with both the communists domestically and the Japanese internationally. Before that happened, though, China's big cities, and above all Shanghai, took on a more modern look with tall buildings, department stores, and Western dress. On the other hand, the always cash-strapped Kuomintang regime concentrated its limited financial and organizational resources on military matters. In doing so, it failed to do much of anything positive for the Chinese countryside and the people who lived there. Uh, for that matter, not much for the urban poor either. The nationalists were first busy combating the remaining warlords, then it was the communists, then it was Japan, uh, and that made them rather less busy running a vast, complex, modern economy. In part for this reason, even in the 1930s, the majority of Chinese peasants had seen little or no improvement in their standard of living since the times of the Qing Empire. Any advantages brought by modernization were yet to have a positive impact on rural society. Crops were still sown and harvested by hand. Produce was carried to market on human shoulders. Infant mortality was high. Life expectancy, low. Many girls were still made to bind their feet. The traditional practice of arranged marriage endured. Village localisms were perpetuated. Education was minimal or non-existent. The worldwide depression of the late 1920s brought disaster to many peasants who had over-concentrated on certain cash crops, and hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, died when the markets in such crops as silk, cotton, soybeans, or tobacco suddenly plummeted. This left the villages ripe for recruitment by the communists in particular. Unlike the Kuomintang, they did not pillage their way through the countryside. Instead, they redistributed land taught improved farming techniques, and even helped with the harvests themselves. In many ways, the situation was not unlike that in the villages of Japan, though there, for a variety of socio-historical reasons, it was militarism and expansionism, rather than communism, that tended to capture the hearts and minds of the people. In both cases, it was not just the absolute conditions in rural China and Japan, but the comparison with the cities that disenchanted the villagers. Many cities began to see new, improved hospitals with better medical care, schools and education, well-paved roads, faster trains, even air transport that enlivened and diversified the economy with better, faster, wider trade networks, electricity in the cities that powered cinemas, and consumer goods such as radios and phonographs for entertainment, and all of the accoutrements of a modern life of fashionable cigarettes, short skirts, high heels, and business suits with dapper derbies. The spectacle of urban prosperity and progress could not but raise resentment for those trapped in the stagnant pre-modern past of many villages and hamlets. And uh, the KMT did very little, uh, and even less systematically and systemically, to address these disparities to kickstart the rural economy. 
what little improvement was made in Kuomintang-controlled territory was largely through the efforts of Western charities, many Christian. These organizations tended to focus on literacy and concrete measures to improve the quality of daily life, but generally found that piecemeal change was impossible in the complex, deep-rooted webs of socioeconomic and cultural relations that defined village societies. The Kuomintang was equally stymied when it did attempt to effect positive change, and the failures of Chiang Kai-shek to address these problems left an opening for the communists. Though the communists were still on the run throughout much of this period, uh, it, the, as I've suggested, communism itself had enormous appeal for many in many parts of the countryside. Still, it wasn't until the 1930s that the Chinese communists were able to effectively organize and make national inroads. When the party's central committee was driven from Shanghai completely in 1933 and forced to take refuge in Jiangxi, the local leader there, Mao Zedong, was able to establish a stranglehold on power within the Communist Party. From this time on, the personality and mind of Mao became a central factor in the CCP revolution. During the war with Japan from 1937 to 1945, the Communist Party formed itself into a potent revolutionary force able to mobilize poor peasants into a well-disciplined fighting force. The civil war that followed World War II uh, from 1947 to 1949 and eventually resulted in the victory of the Communist Party, and this set the stage for the post-war People's Republic, which ostensibly at least continues today. So we're going to have to talk about Mao, who lived from 1893 to 1976. Uh, we're going to spend some substantial time on him because of his outsized influence on Chinese history in the 20th century. We're going to try and take a moment here to understand both his career, uh, is the sort of the sweep of his career, but also his own personal ideological journey. It's not until around 1920 that Mao begins to show particular interest in Marxism though his essay on the, quote, great union of the popular masses the previous year certainly augurs that ideological turn. In school, Mao had been fascinated with the writings of turn-of-the-century reformers, such as Kang Youwei and Yang Chichao. He left his rural home for a middle school in Changsha, where, for a year, he spent his days at the public library reading world history and Chinese translations of works by Western writers, such as Rousseau, Montesquieu, John Stuart Mill, Adam Smith, and Charles Darwin. He eventually graduated at 24, and he followed his favorite teacher to Beijing. There, he worked in the university library, taught school, started a magazine, and even did a bit of community organizing. It seems unlikely that Mao developed his well-known antipathy toward intellectuals during his time in the Beijing University Library, where he was, excuse me, I, I think I said it seems unlikely, I meant it seems likely, uh, where he was looked down on as unsophisticated by some of his intellectual idols. He eventually returned to Hunan in 1920. There he became a school principal and began to explore in earnest his interest in communism. Mao was one of the two delegates from Hunan to the first meeting of the Communist Party in Shanghai in July 1921. He returned to Hunan with instructions to develop the party infrastructure and its ties to organized labor. In accordance with party policy, in 1923, Mao joined the uh, Nationalist Party, the KMT, and returned to Guangzhou. Uh, that was two years later, 
And he did that to work for the propaganda department of the nationalists, uh, the nationalist government. He was elevated to a position as director of the Peasants Training Institute in 1926, where he worked to organize peasants ahead of the Northern Expedition. By this time, i.e. the mid-1920s, Mao had come to see the world in Marxist-Leninist terms, writing of the structural oppression of the peasantry by the landholding classes, and also the capitalist classes, and also the imperialist powers. He also accepted the corresponding Leninist concept of a world movement against capitalist imperialism on the basis of class struggle. Mao was back in Hunan during the White Terror in Shanghai. Obeying party instructions again, Mao encouraged peasant insurrection, but found that Chiang Kai-shek's bloody purge had cowed the locals and deprived the communists of momentum and energy. Mao's report back to the party emphasized the need for force to support ideas. In perhaps his most iconic phrase, he wrote, quote, political power is obtained from the barrel of a gun. It's ironic, perhaps, but definitely fitting and unsurprising that he learned this lesson from the man who became his arch nemesis, Chiang Kai-shek. This was the same year that he penned a famous essay on the Hunan peasantry, in which he expounded his own version of, quote, creative destruction, uh, that thing for which capitalism is known. Mao wrote, a revolution is not like inviting people to dinner, or writing an essay, or painting a picture, or doing embroidery. It cannot be so refined, so leisurely and gentle, so benign, upright, courteous, temperate, and complacent. A revolution is an uprising, an act of violence, whereby one class overthrows the power of another. To right a wrong, it is necessary to exceed the proper limits. The wrongs cannot be righted without doing so. In October 1927, Mao led his remaining followers, uh, his peasant followers, into a mountain lair used by secret society members on the border between Hunan and Jiangxi. There he pushed through an extreme version of land reform, redistributing all the land of the rich, and requiring all the physically able to work. His troops suffered, uh, with little in the way of arms or ammunition, clothes or medicine. So, in January 1929, he began to look for a better supplied base area, less vulnerable to nationalist attacks. He eventually found one in a border region between Jiangxi and Fujian. As noted earlier, in 1932, the Central Committee of the Communist Party was forced to give up trying to foment insurrections in Shanghai and other major urban areas. The committee joined Mao in his base in Jiangxi. In 1934, the nationalists encircled the communists in Jiangxi with a force numbering somewhere around a million. That's the sort of number that comes down to us. This was the fifth so-called extermination campaign. The CCP leadership gave up their stronghold in Jiangxi and uh, they led somewhere north of 85,000, perhaps as many as 90,000 men, and only about 35 women, out of the Kuomintang encirclement, leaving another 30,000 behind to the nationalists' tender mercies. This was the beginning of the year-long Long March, which was both a retreat and an attempt to find a strategic area in which to regroup, reorganize, and build up strength by recruiting and training local peasants who were aggrieved by the oppressive class structure of Chinese society, and also by the impositions of the imperialist powers as the communists saw it. By the end of the Long March, when the communists finally established a new base at Shanxi in 1936, they had walked somewhere between three and 10,000 kilometers, depending on whose account one believes. Regardless of that, 
only 8,000 of the original marchers remain. And remember, there was somewhere around 90,000, though their ranks, ranks had swelled to more than twice that many with the addition of new recruits. During this strategic retreat, which lasted a full year, Mao ultimately asserted his complete dominance over the entire party. At a January 1935 meeting, he took advantages of rivalries within the party to take control and continued to utilize detailed survey work of the type he had done as a party underling in the 1920s to understand and co-opt new regions of China. Mao and the communists had the difficult task of mobilizing the bulk of the peasantry without alienating the upper echelons of village society or bringing down savage repression by the landlord militarist complex, as Fairbank rightly put it. The CCP used land redistribution as a major tool to garner peasant support, but also struggled not to lose too much support from the rural landlord class. Citing Tony Sage's work, Fairbank continues, quote, Part of Mao's effort was to supplant the patron-client relationships that had fostered social stability, and of course problems, in the villages, with a new social order based on close analysis as a preparation for class struggle. This was by no means easy to do. On the other hand, surviving the long march had imbued the communists with confidence and a sense of camaraderie and optimism. Survivors of the march emerged toughened and filled with a sense of solidarity forged by shared hardships. There was also a heightened self-confidence, a conviction that the movement could surmount all obstacles. In the previous lecture, I mentioned that the issues of women's rights, especially vis-a-vis -vis divorce, presented conundrums for the nationalists. One of the underappreciated aspects of Mao's ideologies and policies, especially early on, was that he strongly advocated gender equality. Men, he observed, were subjected to three types of oppressive authority, political, clan, and religious. Women suffered a fourth oppression, that of masculine authority. So when Mao set up his regime in Jiangxi, the so-called Jiangxi Soviet, which was one of a dozen or so Soviets around China at the time, he created a new marriage law that banned arranged marriage and simplified and made divorce equitable. This ideological stance was offset by fairly widespread coercion of women into both sex and marriage, and the abuses of authority perpetrated by male party officials on women, in actual fact. Throughout the Long March, Mao had been faced with the impossible disparity in military strength between communist and nationalist forces. This inequality was initially manifest in all aspects of military readiness, funding, materiel, and personnel. Mao's ragtag band of largely untrained, undernourished, uneducated, undisciplined, and undermanned peasants were facing off with Chiang Kai-shek's better-funded professional armies. But as recent history has reminded us again and again, guerrilla warfare is a tremendously effective tool for the weaker side in such asymmetrical warfare. As he fed and trained and prepared his soldiers, Mao developed and effectively deployed his three key principles of guerrilla warfare. One draw the enemy in until his supply lines can be cut off. Two, attack only with numerical superiority or other assurances of victory. And three, recruit local peasants as intelligence gatherers. The face-off between the nationalists and communists that ensued uh, at the end of the Long March was now one primarily between large cities held by the Guomindang, where Chiang Kai-shek enjoyed the support of the bourgeoisie and capitalist classes, and increasingly large areas of the countryside, where the various Soviets were making inroads with disaffected peasantry. 
this represented a shift for the communists, who previously had imagined their constituency as the urban proletariat. Some of what we know of the CCP and Mao during these years, it should be said, comes from the work of the American journalist Edgar Snow, who visited Mao in 1936. His book, Red Star Over China, is a sympathetic record of Mao and his followers, who he found to be, quote, committed patriots and egalitarian social reformers, full of optimism and purpose, in the summation of Patricia Ebrey. So take this all with a bit of a grain of salt. In addition to their own rivalry, both the nationalists and communists recognized an increasing threat from Japan. After the 21 demands of 1915 and the Versailles settlement and ensuing May 4th movement of 1919, and then the subsequent continued expansion of Japanese economic interests in the Northeast, many Chinese had come to see Japan as an existential threat to their national sovereignty. The Imperial Japanese Army units stationed in Manchuria to protect the railroads, which were at the heart of Japanese economic interests, included radicals who believed that Japan should take all of northern China by force. They engineered a number of crises, beginning in 1928, to press the civilian government in Tokyo into taking radical action. And we're going to discuss the particulars of the Quantum Army in a separate lecture. I do want to talk about the often forgotten 1928 incident. That was the assassination of the old marshal, Zhang Zuolin. In the context of multilateralism and treaty-supported internationalism that dominated the world after World War I, Japan's policy toward China had been more conciliatory. In addition to the so-called Four-Power Treaty, Five-Power Treaty, and Nine-Power Treaty, signed at the Washington Naval Conference of 1921 to 1922, Japan had also concluded a bilateral agreement returning the Shandong concessions and railways it had taken from Germany at Versailles. This was the same year that Japan drew down from an extended fiasco in Siberia, which we've also touched on before. For both China and Japan, then, 1922 marked the beginning of a more conciliatory mood between the two governments, a period usually forgotten or ignored. Part of Japan's maneuvering, however, was to support Zhang Zuolin in the Northeast, the aging warlord was seen in Tokyo as the best way to secure and advance Japanese interests in the region. The assassination of the old marshal by rogue army officers, which was improbably blamed on local opium addicts, was intended to provoke a war that would allow Japan to seize the area outright. That didn't come to pass. Cooler heads prevailed on both sides. It was, however, the precursor to the Manchurian incident of 1931, which finally provided the pretext, the excuse needed to the Imperial Japanese Army. The IGA consolidated its hold of the Northeast, establishing a puppet state called Manchukuo, or Manchukoku, under the nominal rule of the deposed last Qing Emperor Puyi, and subsequently fought all the way up to Shanghai. Uh, excuse me, down to Shanghai. Uh, the League of Nations blamed Japan for the Manchurian incident. Uh, that's the Lytton Committee, which we've talked about and the international community did not recognize Manchukuo as a state. In the end, the Manchurian incident, which was instigated not by Tokyo and not through uh, official civil government channels, but instead by a rebellious, lawless group of army officers in Manchuria, nevertheless ended Japan's decade of internationalism, at least through official channels. Japan had been, as we've talked about, a charter member of the League of Nations and a major international player in the multilateralist world order of the 1920s, but stormed out of the League in 1933 
when the Lytton Commission, the investigative commission on the Manchurian incident, found Japan to be at fault. We'll touch on, we'll just touch on things here and go into more detail on the incident itself uh, elsewhere. But in any case, it was the excuse that the army needed to launch an aggressive campaign to control Manchuria. Japanese expansion in China was fueled partly by its growing need for China's natural resources during this uh, spreading global economic depression, and partly as the result of the Tokyo government's feeble authority over militaristically inclined adventurers stationed in China. In addition, Japan's considerable political turmoil during the years leading up to the war resulted, among other things, in a strong Japanese aversion for communism. At the same time, a new goal was evolving, the establishment of a greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, a Japanese empire in Asia that would match and eventually drive out white imperialism. All this was irrelevant, of course, in China. Anti-Japanese protests and boycotts broke out in the midst of rising anti-nationalist, excuse me, of rising nationalist, in other words, anti-Japanese sentiment. In Shanghai, the Japanese stirred up more Chinese and international anti-Japanese sentiment when, in purported revenge for an insult to the empire, Japanese marines bombed a civilian district. This led to a siege of the city that was fended off by fierce Chinese resistance. The international community clutched its collective pearls, many no doubt made in Japan, and continued to refuse to recognize Manchukuo. Japan was edging closer and closer to becoming an international pariah. But Hitler and Mussolini had already noticed that the world was basically all talk. Despite all this, Chiang Kai-shek declined to battle the Japanese directly. He was quite conscious of his own weakness vis-a-vis -vis both the communists and the remaining warlords, and he believed that he had to unify the country before he could face the Japanese. The first pacification, then resistance policy, was probably also influenced by his own rabid anti-communism. He was apparently fond of saying, quote, the Japanese are a disease of the skin. The communists are a disease of the heart. In other words, an otherwise healthy, unified China could easily be cured of the Japanese. The real danger came from communism, which rotted the soul. And this explains his decision to sign the Tanggu uh, Truce in early 1933, which, though it was only tactic, sort of tacit and a very small victory in China, uh, in that sense, uh, de facto recognized Manchukuo and created a massive demilitarized zone south of the Great Wall in Hubei. Japan had advanced into the area to clear out a buffer zone for Manchukuo and attacked Chinese troops in the province with a mixture of force, cunning, and social psychological warfare, including hijacking Chinese military radio frequencies and issuing false and contradictory orders. Subsequently, Japan would establish additional suzerains in this area, such as the Hubei Chahar Political Council and East Hubei Autonomous Government, which it was not. But Chiang Kai-shek welcomed this deal with Tokyo, nevertheless, because it allowed him to continue his campaign against Mao without worrying about Japan, at least in the short run. The deal also had the benefit of conveying legitimacy to Chiang Kai-shek because the Japanese were dealing with him as the official representative of China, instead of other warlords. Chiang Kai-shek's strategy was rewarded in 1936 by being kidnapped by his ostensible subordinate, the young marshal, Zhang Shuiliang. In the wake of the Manchurian incident, 
Chang had ordered the young marshal to stay his hand and conserve his forces to crush the CCP. With the cooperation of Chang's own officers, Chang, whose father had been assassinated in 1928 by the same Kwantung army that now ravaged northern China, held the KMT leader hostage until he swore to form an alliance with the CCP against Japanese aggression. This was the so-called Second United Front, which traded civil war for shared resistance against the Japanese. It was part of a larger PR coup for the communists who had been insisting that the KMT was unpatriotic for prioritizing the war against communism over foreign invasion by the Japanese. Still, Mao himself had previously called for a united anti-Japanese uprising that included the nationalists, and was only convinced to share a cause with Chang by the machinations of the Comintern. Until the terms of agreement were reached, the CCP temporarily relinquished its goal of armed communist revolution and placed its army, its Red Army, under the nominal command of the Kuomintang. The nationalists, for their part, consented to permit CCP liaison officers uh, into a number of KMT-controlled cities uh, and also allowed the publication of the party rag, the New China Daily. In fact, the Red Army remained more or less autonomous and gained some nationalist funding, and the CCP retained control over its territories. There, party membership swelled. In short, the alliance was weak, poorly coordinated, and seems primarily to have benefited Mao. The new Guomindang CCP alliance was quickly put to the test. On July 7, 1937, a Japanese soldier stationed near the Marco Polo Bridge near Beijing briefly went missing. As Fenby points out, eventually he returned, and was variously reported to have gotten lost in the moonlit night after uh, moonless night after stopping to urinate, having been taken prisoner by the Chinese, having visited a brothel, or having fallen in a pit, gravel pit and passed out. In any case, his absence was turned into an international issue by the Japanese, who launched a punitive strike. Japan launched a full-scale offensive, sweeping south, and Chiang Kai-shek was forced to abandon Beijing and Tianjin, but his best German-trained troops held off the Japanese at Shanghai for three months. The losses, however, were staggering, and the resistance ultimately futile. Under heavy shelling and bombing from the well-equipped Japanese military, Shanghai lost roughly a quarter million people. For comparison, Japanese casualties were somewhere around 40,000. It's perhaps worth remembering, though, that the first bombing of Shanghai in this conflict was by poorly trained and reckless Chinese pilots who missed the Japanese Navy offshore. In any case, the loss of Shanghai, Ni KMT's most important revenue source and international center of China, was devastating in a number of ways. Given that, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists retreated to Nanking, his capital, which also fell by the end of the year. The occupying Japanese army went on a rampage, laying waste to the city and to its people. Definitive numbers are impossible to come by, but responsible estimates put the massacre of civilians and fugitive soldiers somewhere between 40,000 and 300,000. Uh, the gap is fairly extraordinary. Perhaps 20,000 women or so were raped. The numbers are not the point, though. However many were brutalized and slaughtered, this was a tragedy on an unthinkable scale. The seven-week orgy of mayhem and violence that ensued was widely reported at the time in the foreign press, where it was labeled the Rape of Nanking, the Nanking Massacre, etc. 
Spence's reflections, though they're a little bit older, on the causes of this inexplicable debauch are really as good as any. He writes, There's no obvious explanation for this grim event, nor perhaps can one be found. The Japanese soldiers, who had expected easy victory, instead had been fighting hard for months and had taken infinitely higher casualties than anticipated. They were bored, angry, frustrated, tired. The Chinese women were undefended, their menful powerful, powerless or absent. The war, still undeclared, had no clear-cut goal or purpose. Perhaps all Chinese, regardless of sex or age, seemed marked out as victims. The war continued to go badly for China, but after Nanking, it went poorly for Japan as well, as the IGA, IJA, the Imperial Japanese Army, was increasingly bogged down in the logistical nightmares of a land war in Asia. As the historian Joanna Whaley-Cohen has observed of this, quote, the rapidity of the Japanese advance was profoundly demoralizing, but out of the darkness came occasional rays of hope. The Nanjing Massacre, horrendous as it was, bolstered the Chinese will to resist, while occasional Chinese victories against the apparently invincible Japanese, such as that one at Taizhuang, Shandong in April 1938, suggested that the enemy might not after all be uh, might after all be vulnerable. For despite Japan's impressive military power, in China it found it had bitten off more than it could chew. Added to Japanese overextension, the vastness of the terrain and the dogged tenacity of the Chinese people made China ultimately unconquerable, even by Japan's far superior technological power. That's true that the Japanese army controlled China's entire eastern seaboard and established suzerains run by local puppets. And true, Japan continued to terrorize the Chinese population with biological and chemical warfare, including the bubonic plague, poison gas, etc. Also true is that, uh, and, and also true and often forgotten, in this hideous orgy of Japanese violence, is that the KMT was little better. When the Chinese had to retreat from Kaifeng, Chen, uh, Chiang Kai-shek ordered his engineers to blow up the dikes on the Yellow River, creating a gigantic flood that engulfed more than 4,000 villages, drowned some 300,000 people, and left a nice round 2 million Ch Chinese or so homeless. Recall that the upper estimate, the officially endorsed uh, number from China about the uh, so-called rape of Nanjing, uh, is 30,000. And if you realize that, excuse me, it's 300,000. And if you realize that the scale of uh, brutality, uh, or at least sort of indifference uh, by Chiang Kai-shek, who also killed some 300,000 people, uh, was, it, it becomes clear. It's also entirely ineffective this strategy of his to drown 300,000 people. It delayed the Japanese for only two or three months at best. Still, Chinese resistance was dogged and undying. The Japanese had assumed that the capture of, capture of Nanking would bring Chiang Kai-shek to the bargaining table, and that that would be on Japan's terms. They were wrong. The nationalists retreated inland, and the war became a deadly, unwinnable morass for both sides. Abandoning Shanghai made the KMT regime essentially a, feudal, a fugitive government, living in exile, on a shoestring budget, dependent on the assistance of the warlords and communists and other deplorables that Chiang had until recently been trying to eliminate. No opium revenues, 
no industrial revenues dwindling and then vanishing Soviet aid, and constant Japanese bombing made the Western press call Free China a joke. And it was a cruel one at that. After an initial withdrawal to Wuhan, the nationalists were forced next to Chongqing. To, uh, Chongqing. At all stages, Free China's capitals, quote-unquote, suffered shortages of almost everything. And with hyperinflation at a, uh, a high of somewhere around 10% per month, graft and corruption was widespread. With the bulk of Chiang Kai-shek's well-trained soldiers decimated, the KMT began conscripting untrained, unwilling peasants. A third or so died on their way from the villages to the nationalist bases, where they were to be trained, albeit cursorily. Desertion was widespread, and those who stayed were hardly a proud fighting force. Things were increasingly difficult for Japan, too. China's great distances spread Japanese forces. In North China, Japan concentrated on holding rail lines, and Chinese guerrilla forces could concentrate on blowing them up. What was supposed to have been a lightning victory turned into guerrilla warfare and counterinsurgency. Chinese resistance forced Japan to keep about 40% of its troops in China, even after the Pacific War began in late 1941. A two-front war, the worst possible scenario, was underway. Moreover, rather than persuading the Chinese to surrender, Japanese terror tactics instead intensified popular hatred for the Japanese. You will not be surprised to learn that Japan's so-called kill-all, burn-all, loot-all policy adopted in 1940 in retaliation for a CCP offensive was not particularly popular with the Chinese locals. The nationalists did little to help their own cause. Drowning more than a quarter million Chinese was not only uh, terrible, but it was just simply the most spectacular of Chang's many atrocities and failures. Cooperation between the communists and nationalists ended in January 1941, when the Kuomintang attacked CCP divisions. Neither party immediately acknowledged the end of their alliance, but the continuation of the United Front was an empty and only barely polite fiction. The Kuomintang imposed an economic blockade on the communist base after the alliance collapsed. Despite this, 10,000, 100,000 people made their way to Mao's base in Yang'an during the war, where the communists' struggle against Japan and the relatively better treatment of the peasantry had earned significant popular support. Party membership is estimated to have jumped by a factor of 20 in just three years, from about 40,000 in 1937 to 800,000 in 1940. One secret to the CCP's success in gaining control of the social political, and economic life in Chinese villages was that, unlike the Kuomintang and other rivals for the CCP's loyalty, Mao and his followers gave peasants what they wanted, an army of friendly troops who not only did not steal their crops, but also helped them bring in the harvest and implemented popular economic reforms. There were matters on which the two sides could still agree, however. The fatally stupid Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor in December of 1941 was welcomed by both the communists and nationalists. For Chiang Kai-shek, it signaled the long-awaited entry of the U.S. into a war he knew he could not win without them. The nationalists were heavily indebted to Washington, to the tune of more than a billion dollars. And remember, it's also 1941, so that's even more money than it sounds like. Some Americans had taken to calling him Sign My Check, but for complex reasons, the 
United States had been unwilling to do more than toss money on the dumpster fire that was the KMT war effort. On the other hand, Roosevelt eventually overcame Churchill's misgivings to make China one of the big four powers comprising the Allies. For Mao, on the other hand, if nothing, uh, if nothing else, the uh, Japanese choice to engage with the Americans meant the beginning of the end for the Japanese menace to China. The Kuomintang could be dealt with in due time. And the KMT was, in fact, still also a useful shield for Mao on his eastern flank, soaking up the Japanese offensive for him. Nationalist resistance stopped the Japanese from reaching Yangang, allowing Mao to concentrate on ideological and economic issues, and securing both political and ideological control of his followers. With the rapid growth of the party's membership, Mao found it increasingly important to provide a unified ideological framework that secured his hold over the communists. From his earliest writings on, Mao Zedong had expressed disdain for the traditionalist elites of China, especially their ignorance of rural poverty and their impracticality. And unlike both Marx and Lenin, who had been more sanguine about the proletariat of the industrialized cities, Mao saw the rural peasantry as the vanguard of class warfare and the coming revolution. The key was strict ideological discipline, which Mao consolidated in the 1940s. The first of his so-called rectification campaigns in 1942 singled out certain individuals, some not coincidentally were potential rivals, and forced them to study documents hand-selected by Mao, self-criticize in a manner consistent with Mao's thought, and face public mass criticisms and humiliations. Some were severely abused, both physically and emotionally. Some died. Both those who were selected and those who were not learned to see any deviation from Mao Zedong thought as a personal defect, which had to be blamed upon their liberalism, bourgeois background, etc., and then overcome in the name of revolution. Rectification targeted first and foremost subjectivism, sectarianism, and party formalism, but also bureaucratism and individualism and a host of other evil isms that Mao associated with anything that threatened unity and obedience. In this sense, rectification was a key to his rise to complete control of the CCP. In 1945, the preamble of the new party constitution recognized Mao's new role as sage of the party. Quote, the Communist Party of China takes Mao Zedong thought, the thought of the unity of Marxist-Leninist theory with the practice of the Chinese revolution as the basis for all its work, and opposes any dogmatist or empiricist deviations. After the Battle of Midway in 1942, the Japanese war effort began its slow, painful collapse. That's primarily a topic for another time. For now, it's important to understand that the Japanese campaign in China was blunted by the onslaught of the Americans in the Pacific, especially the island hopping, the retaking of the islands, and the carpet bombing of the Japanese home islands which followed. When the end of the war arrived in August of 1945, the communists went to war with the nationalists. At the time, there were upward of one million Japanese troops remaining in China, almost as many again in Manchuria, and another 1.75 million Japanese civilians just for good measure. It took months to repatriate these millions, and repatriate is one of those weird words since many of them had been born in, not in uh, Japan, but anyway. Uh, but the struggle for Chinese future uh, went on during this brief interregnum. 
The KMT-CCP civil war eventually concluded in 1949 with victory for Mao and his communists, who established the PRC, the People's Republic of China. This was an absolutely shocking outcome. Fairbank put it pretty well. He wrote, when peace broke out in August 1945, the nationalist armed forces were at least twice the size of the CCP's, and moreover had the advantage of American equipment and supplies, plus the assistance of the U.S. Navy in transporting troops and the U.S. Marines in the Tianjin-Beijing area. The nationalists held all of China's major cities and most of its territory. The spirit of the Cold War was emerging in the United States as well as China, and so American backing would obviously continue. In these circumstances, for Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists to lose the civil war was a remarkable achievement. The reasons they lost were both stupidity on the battlefield and incompetence behind the lines. In fact, Washington intervened for almost a year and a half to avert an outright civil war, arranging for several meetings between the two Chinese leaders. Their efforts were fruitless. And in the ensuing civil war, the CCP won its gobsmacking victory for a number of reasons. First, Mao had built up a genuine base of popular support with the land reforms he had carried out to the benefit of the peasantry. It would be a number of years before the excesses of Mao Zedong thought became widely obvious. Second, when nationalist soldiers surrendered or defected, which they did, they brought with them arms and equipment and were incorporated into the communist ranks. To these largely American-made armaments were added some Japanese weapons and materiel captured by the Soviets and supplied to Mao. Third, in the end, Chiang Kai-shek proved to be a piss-poor general and a piss-poor politician. Uh, And this was something that continued after 1945, as it had been before that. He mishandled the economy. He mishandled the populace. He mishandled the military. It was a hat-trick of incompetence that began with pitting his troops against the communists at all, when so many wanted not internecine Chinese infighting, but peace after the long war with Japan. He misunderstood the peace movement as a communist plot, and suppressed it, and snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, by an almost comical mismanagement of economy and society, to go along with this popular, uh, unpopular war. Prices in July 1948 were 3 million times higher than they had been in July 1937, and inflation did not let up then. People had to resort to barter, and a tenth of the population became refugees. Nationalist army officers and soldiers were widely seen as seizing whatever they could for themselves, rather than working for the common good. Student protests were often put down by violence. When liberals demanded that Chiang Kai-shek widen widen participation in his government, he had his secret police assassinate them. No amount of American support could make the Chinese want to continue with this government in power. Chiang Kai-shek also flubbed the war with Mao, allowing himself to be drawn into the wrong side of a conflict that echoed his own recent battles with the Japanese. He controlled the cities and the industrial infrastructure, as the Japanese had. But KMT arrogance and corruption meant that he had little popular support within China, as the Japanese had. He had heavy, slow, unwieldy equipment and no local cooperators providing intelligence, as the Japanese had. Mao was in the opposite position. And the communists simply melted into the hills anyway, and only struck back opportunistically until 1947, when Mao began a counterattack against often inept, overextended nationalist forces.
in the end, facing a roughly equal force, named, uh, roughly ne nearly equal force near Shizhou, Chang lost 500,000 of his 600,000 troops, and the defeated nationalists were forced to flee to Taiwan, where Chang set up a new government. More than half a century of struggle against Japan, coupled with the self-destructive conflict between the KMT and CCP, had dramatically transformed the political and economic landscape of China. The Communist Party, with Mao as its preeminent leader, had wiggled free of strict Comintern control and wed itself to the Chinese peasantry, rather than the international proletariat. The thoroughly cynicized Maoist party was enormous and had become both ideologically unified, with a particularly iron grip on pesky intellectuals and other potential troublemakers, i.e. thinkers, and experienced with mobilization and land distribution. China also emerged from World War I as one of the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. During the war, international alignments had shifted. After Britain uh, proved unable to defend Hong Kong, Singapore, or Burma from Japanese invasions in 1941 and 42, it lost its standing in Chinese eyes. Its place was taken by the United States, which ended up doing most of the fighting against Japan. Roosevelt wished to see China as the dominant power in East Asia again, and he convinced his allies to give Chiang Kai-shek uh, a chance to be included in major meetings of the allies at Cairo and at Yalta. It was a result of this sort of geopolitics that China, recently scorned by the West as weak and backward, gained a seat as one of the most politically powerful nations in the world. But there's a trick here, and some of you may already have noticed. In 1945, indeed until 1971, China was Taiwan. The KMT government established by Chiang Kai-shek, the Republic of China, was the internationally recognized Chinese government until the 1970s. It was only after the UN General Assembly Resolution 2758 recognized the People's Republic of China, not the Republic of China, as the legal representative of China in the UN and gave it the seat on the Security Council previously occupied by Taiwan, which was entirely expelled from the UN, that China became China. <laughs>